Who are we? You sure you want to know? We're your friendly neighborhood podcast hosts, Peter. And Sean. Welcome to So Much to Tell, a Raimi Spider-Man podcast. Where you have just opened a portal to part two of our dive into Spider-Man No Way Home. Welcome back to So Much to Tell, and you know we are excited to get underway here with part two of our discussion on the, the recent blockbuster uh, film, Spider-Man No Way Home. Yeah. You know, the last episode we started out, uh, we covered quite a bit of ground, uh, focused a lot on the Green Goblin in particular, a little bit about our old pal Flint Marco Sandman, and uh, you know, we're going to be picking up right where we left off here. Just a slight spoiler warning, because uh, you know usually on this show we're talking about Spider-Man films from the 2000s, but... In this episode, we're talking about a film that's several decades more recent. <laughs> so this episode, we're going to talk timeline shenanigans, say hello, Peter, to the original cinematic web slinger, Tobey Maguire, who proves he can still sling with the best of them. But our first order of business this episode is to talk Ock. Doc Ock, that <laughs> is. Dr. Otto Octavius, to which everyone laughs. What are the odds? What are the what are yeah, the what odds? are the odds? <laughs> guy named Otto, Otto Octavius winds up with eight limbs. Everyone laughs at him in this world too. Poor guy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's such a crazy crossroads, a crazy crossover of all of these uh, different stories, and it's a real treat to see that play out on the screen. It's super cool for one thing to see Ox mechanical arms fighting Peter's mechanical arms, but Ox arms then integrate that Stark nanotechnology, which you know, I have to wonder, like, what, what, what sort of, like, what? Now, how, how does that make sense? You know, yeah. like it's, it's crazy to see, but like, I suppose on the one hand, you know, or I think the one, about, the one tentacle. <laughs> uh, you're right. Yes, thank you. <laughs> on the one tentacle, I think back to Dr. Norman Osborne's paper on nanotechnology. You know, as we hear about in the first movie, and it, on the other tentacle, I think of. Otto's fusion presentation where he mentions the the nanowires and the arms feeding directly into cerebellum so you know maybe that nanotechnology that Norman wrote a paper on was part of this research Hmm. into Otto's arms and so like maybe there's more nanotechnology incorporated in those arms than we previously thought Hmm. so it would stand to reason then that Otto has a pretty decent working understanding of nanotechnology at yeah. least. I mean, you, I mean, how could you not developing a microchip that goes directly into your nervous system? I mean, right. yeah, I'm sure Otto understand, or at least he thought he understood all of it very well. Um, although clearly it, it, you know, the arms ended up controlling him, not the other way around. Um, yeah, he did program them to be homicidal maniacs, which is a little bit of a surprise, but you know, yeah. every, every scientist has their quirks, you know, <laughs> you know, that's uh, something you hear a lot about these days, you know, wh- you know, at what point does AI start to turn evil or bad or, you know, go off the rails in some way that uh, the original programmers didn't intend it to. That's true. Yeah. Doc Ock is just a black mirror episode waiting to happen. (laughs) Um, But now still with these tentacles, I have to say like, it's almost shocking how easily they're adapted. Mm -hmm. So on the other tentacle, then I sort of have to chalk that up to Tony Stark's 
nanotech just being so remarkably hyper adaptive yeah you know i mean we see it in the movies like mm-hmm. when one part is exposed you know the other you know nanobots like fly into mm-hmm. recreate whatever part of the suit is needed or so like they're like wildly adaptable and i suppose we can sort of relate that to this too like the combination of them being so incredible and adaptive along with the nanotechnology already in auto's tentacles plus i would think just like the incredible amount of control like the subliminal mental control that auto has over his arms Mm -hmm. probably all just kind of comes together to like just so seamlessly blend this together i'm sure he just has to like think or even just like feel you know a a command to the arms and Mm -hmm. it's like okay yep i'll I'll bond with these uh with these weird stark nanobots sure thing boss Mm -hmm. uh (laughs) but i know just what a crazy what what an amazing (laughs) cool development to see to like welcome this raimi character into the mcu (laughs) by like almost like a literal embrace you know with these yeah new arms uh wrapping themselves around him (laughs) um and then what like a crazy simple but just like brilliant cool idea for peter to like be able to defeat doc ock by like pairing with the arms then you know now Mm -hmm. that the the nanotechnology was on both you can pair with it and then control them once they had incorporated the stark tech yeah awesome awesome just from the jump as as the the franchise's crossover here. Really cool way to hmm. combine all of that. Just blow those two worlds together. It, like, you know, literally fuse them. To, I mean, we talked about fusion. I mean, you ah, know, a, fusion, a literal, yeah. <laughs> literal fusion of the Raimi movies and now the uh, MCU. And yeah, like uh, Dr. Octopus, when he's first uh, fighting the Iron Spider, I, you know, just even he himself remarks like, oh, it's good to have some competition. Or I know that's not the quote, but, you know, he... Oh uh, yeah, he look. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, he looks at his own arms. He's like, ah, it looks like we've got competition. <laughs> well, and again, it's just uh, one of the favorite things for me about these movies is just seeing the fish. It's the fish out of water setup. You know, you're seeing mm. somebody taken out of their world, put into a completely new one, and the the drama comes from how do they react to the change? How do they react to their new surroundings? And um, mm. I'm sure, you know, Doc Ock. He was expecting to fight Spider Man, but he wasn't expecting a Spider Man that had his own additional uh, appendages nanotechnology so. you've outdone yourself peter <laughs> like when did he think peter was going to be able to make yeah make that <laughs> like how how did he think peter was going to have the technology that that capability of nanotechnology yeah, because you know, when we last left off i mean he probably thought of peter as like this kind of lazy you know lackluster student like yeah he's got some smarts but he's not he doesn't apply himself he doesn't try hard enough it's i mean it, it's interesting to see auto like being sort of opportunistic that way like ah okay got some nanotechnology in this suit here i'll take that thank you you know Mm -hmm. thinking he's going to use that to his advantage um but one of the most notable things about doc ock in spider-man 2 is his heroic redemption at Mm -hmm. the end too that's something a lot of people point to of what makes this such a great superhero film Mm -hmm. and we get to see that side of auto here and pretty quickly too i mean you know before we really get to see it in any of the other villains so uh, i was really happy to see that because i mean auto mm-hmm. is just such a i don't know congenial character um you know i, I love the scene in spider-man 2 when he and peter are just sort of you know sitting down to lunch you know, sitting down to tea and you know mm-hmm. just sort of talking and joking and having this great meeting of the minds um Mm-hmm. And so I was glad that we got to really sort of 
get to see more of that here. Yeah, yeah, that that dynamic, yes, between um, yeah. Otto and um, you know Toby Maguire's Peter Parker. And you know, I think about it like like in Spider Man Two, you know, Peter deactivates the arms very crudely. You know, like it's not really like a I don't know if it was a completely thought out maneuver here, but you know, he basically just like hands Doc Ock a fork and has him stick a tentacle in the electrical socket. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lights on the on the tentacles, mm-hmm. they sort of like flicker and they fade mm-hmm. a little bit. They flicker in and out. Um, well, and that's one of the ways that we, the audience, can tell that the arms are whether or not the arms are in control. Because when the the lights within the tentacles are red, they're in control and they're evil. But when they become white, that means the auto's in control. Mm-hmm. And so we sort of see them flickering back and forth between these colors here as Peter sort of makes his appeal to Otto. And so like he kind of like manages to like slip into like right in a moment when Otto is detached from the arms, just briefly to sort of speak to him. And then soon enough, like the arms take control again and Otto is like, oh, I won't. And, you know, grabs Peter with his tentacle. And so they're in control again. But like in that moment, Peter's had like just enough to be able to get through to mm-hmm. Otto unencumbered by the arms. Like Otto is still being controlled by the mm-hmm. arms when Peter is talking to him and he's, you know, Otto's arms around Peter's neck. And he, he overcomes it. He overcomes it through sheer force of will at that point. You know, it just. It's... Right. And that's that's amazing. Yeah. And what that's such a cool moment that he actually like fights back against no, the arms. No, you and, listen to me. Yeah. And so like that, that I mean, that's an especially powerful moment, mm-hmm, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, absolutely. We, <laughs> we don't quite get the same sort of arc for Otto here. He's sort of like forcibly removed from the control of the arms. So it's maybe a little bit less of like an emotional arc for him, but it's certainly a big moment for Peter. You know, this is like the first person we see him cure. And I think it is like sort of like a very touching moment when Otto wakes up again and he's just like, it's so quiet. Mm -hmm. I almost forgot what it was like. You know, the voices Mm -hmm. in my head, they're gone. And that's sort of like a really moving moment. It's sort of like a heartbreaking moment too. Yeah, yeah. And like then you see just like how how lost he was uh, with those arms controlling him, mm-hmm. and then immediately he's like, "I'm so grateful. How can I help?" Mm-hmm. And I I love seeing that from Otto. Well, he was it, you know, and it's like he was never unlike Norman. You know, we talked a lot about uh, Norman Osborn and his personality and how that affected you know when the Green Goblin was in control. Was you know was it always there? Was it just amplifying? traits that Norman already carried with him uh, you know with Otto it's it's kind of different I mean it's similar but different in that like you know he I don't think Otto Octavius I mean yeah he was a, I would say when we meet him in Spider-Man 2 yeah he's maybe a bit arrogant or I don't know if arrogance the right word he's certainly very I think he is I think he has a little bit of a prideful streak to him he, he does I, I mean he, he, it's he, not huge but well, like no, I think he definitely does actually because he even says like yeah. you know his hubris is what killed Rosie I mean he he admits it at the end of the movie that you know he was a little bit cocky, a little bit overconfident. And I think we have a little bit of that sort of um, like an Icarus illusion in that famous moment where he's like, you know, we see the sun reflected in his eyes as the power of the sun mm-hmm. in the palm of my hand. And we sort of get that same sort of idea of like flying too close to the sun. Yeah. I have this power. I've done it. And he do- he wants to do it for very altruistic reason. Of exactly. Course, yeah. Like, I think yeah, part it, of that gets to him. It's like, yeah, his he has pride. I think that's his fatal, you know, his flaw. It's, it's his pride. It's his ego. But he's also not just pursuing power. Unlike Norman, he's not pursuing power for power's sake. He's pursuing it. Right. You know, like you said, for altruistic purposes, he, 
wants to give free energy to the world. I mean, he wants sustainable, clean energy. You know, so it's definitely for to solve one of the world's biggest problems. It's not he's not notably he's not a defense contractor that is in the business of making weapons to you know harm, kill other people. He's he's quite the opposite. He's trying to make gadgets and equipment that can save lives, that can save the planet. So a little bit different, but all the same, you know, his personality does have its flaws. And, um, you know, so I think it makes that redemptive moment at the end of that movie, Spider-Man 2, all the more powerful when he is able to redeem himself and re- you know, recognize that it was his hubris that ultimately you know, led to, a, you know, to the, to the destruction and to the just to the devastation that we witnessed. And then similarly here, I mean, we get to see that side of him again, that, that side of him that wants to help, mm-hmm. that wants the best for people. You know, he's immediately like, what can I do to help you, Peter? Yeah. You know, how, how can I how can I offer my expertise? And like, you know, when he talks to Norman, he's like, aren't you excited, Norman? You know, no more darker half. You know, like he's thrilled. He's thrilled to be freed of it. Of course, then soon enough, all heck breaks loose. And, yeah. you know, he's, you know, Electro blasts him out a window. And so mm-hmm. he's... He goes on the run, sort of uh, recuperate. But then he comes back in the big fight to help Peter. Like, he didn't have to. Yeah. You know, that was just a pure heroic moment on his part. You know, similar to, you know, when he takes it upon himself to sacrifice himself for, you know, the lives of many Mm -hmm. uh, to stop his invention, you know, to destroy his own invention. He, again, takes on this heroic moment of swooping in. uh, (laughs) Using sort of his uh, his like poor acting skills, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like, leave them, they're mine, <laughs> you know. And like, it's interesting. I'm I'm always interested by like when an actor acts acting. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Because like, I think you can tell sort of in that moment, like Otto sounds like very kind of like hollow and stiff. Like you can tell like he doesn't mean it. And so it's just interesting because obviously Alfred Molina, he's a great actor, and so it's interesting to see him acting. Yeah acting hmm. uh, that always sort of like interests me but yeah so he comes back in that moment he kind of like pretends to be mm-hmm. a villain to electro when like the other spider-man are like all oh, like literally up against a mm-hmm. wall here and then he swoops in and you know takes the arc reactor off of electro and he's like there you go mm-hmm. which is just so lovely to see he even like when goblin shows up he jumps in blocks a bunch of razor mm-hmm. bats with his tentacles he like grabs the goblin's glider with his tentacles. I mean, it's it's almost like the video game friend or foe, you know? Yeah. Which is sort of set in the Raimi verse, you know, sort of taking all the the villains from the movies uh, up to that point, up to two thousand seven, and like having you fight alongside them. Uh, it's just crazy to see like Doctor Octopus and the Green Goblin fighting on the big screen. Mm-hmm. It kind of you know, reminds me a little bit of like Spider Man Three, how. It was really cool to see, mm. you know, uh, Spider-Man and um, the new Goblin, Harry Osborn, team up at the end there to to take on Venom and Sandman. So it's great to Such see. Such a great moment. It's, it's great in this movie to see Doctor Octopus teaming up with uh, the Spider-Man as well. It's just I don't know. It's, yeah. it's just fun to see. Yeah, just different character. I mean, that was the whole point of the Avengers. You know, like mm. everybody wanted to see these people go into battle together. Um, see how that would turn out. Um, it's yeah, just it's a good point. Yeah, there's something just, I think, almost inherently appealing about that, seeing these character combinations. That, yeah. yeah. Just seeing these different character combinations. And so seeing uh, Dr. Octopus on the side of the good guys for once, I think, was kind of a nice, you know, something that we never got to see before. So, it was, yeah, I agree. It was a lot of fun to, a lot of fun and, and very touching, very heartwarming to see that as well. Yeah. 
And then so like once again at this point, at long last, Otto finds himself with the power of the sun in the palm of his hand, courtesy a Stark arc reactor. You know, he <laughs> says that, you know, the power of the sun, and then, you know, Toby's Peter swings in, so it's in the palm of your hand. And I think that's sort of a really fascinating moment because obviously that ties back to his you know, his arc and motivation from Spider-Man 2. And now he has this improved version of basically the energy source he always wanted to create for humanity. Like, what do you think he's feeling in that moment? Because that's got to be a profound moment for him. No, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, like it, it's a I, I don't know, like I could see it going a couple of ways. I mean, just, you know, happy and overjoyed. I could also see maybe being a little jealous or, you know, just like that. Oh, well, to- how, you know, this Tony Stark, who I never met, was able to do this, but not me. I could see that being, you know, being a little bit deflating, but at the same time, but I don't uh, really get that from him in that moment. Though. I don't either. You know? I'm just, like, you know, you know, but it's a very bittersweet moment, I think. And I think it's sort of a really nice culmination to sort of his arc carrying over from Spider-Man two, because it's bittersweet, but I don't think he's bitter in that moment. Yeah. I think he's just maybe a little bit sad, maybe a little bit awestruck impressed yeah. maybe he's a little bit inspired that wow someone did it mm-hmm. it, it can be that's done true yeah that's a good that's what i mean that's like that's the good side of it because i think you you know if somebody with a different personality would be jealous or spiteful or you know imagine if it were norman you know who'd been working his whole life on a particular project then he fi- right. and then he, he sees somebody else already beat him to it you know i think yeah no- and i think this does connect again with his like we talked about like you know if he has a sin if he has a flaw it's pride mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm and I think, like, that moment where he's holding it, like, you know, he's not, like, steal it. Like, no, you know, I'm, I'm, he wouldn't. He's not going to steal it. I I don't think he's his tone doesn't come across as jealous. I think he's sort of getting to show us that, like, he's sort of at peace. He's sort of come to terms yeah, with what yeah. he's done. He's tried his mm, best. Yeah. Someone did it. It can be done. That's wonderful. Maybe a little regretful that his didn't work. But, like I said, maybe maybe inspired and hopeful that, it could. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. So I really like that moment when he gets to. Yeah, it's a little bit of a, of a callback, like a sort of fun callback to what he says in Spider-Man 2, Power of the Sun, the palm of my hand. But like, I think it's actually pretty meaningful in that moment. I Absolutely. And it also heralds the return of um, Toby that moment as well, because he, he similarly mentions the power of the sun, the palm of my hand line at the beginning of the movie. But of course, the Peter that's there has no idea what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And and now this new Spider-Man comes up and echoes it and finishes the mm-hmm. line for him in the palm of your hand, um, which I don't know. Maybe maybe he said that when they were at tea. I don't know, because when he says it in Spider-Man 2, like, I think he says it kind of quietly right next to a fusion. Yeah, he does. I don't think I, Peter heard him from yeah, the way over that, there. Well, that might have been like the catchphrase <laughs> or something that he was working on for um, for that for the project. And maybe, yeah. he, you know. He must have said it off screen, you know, when they were having tea together or something. That's that's what I'm going to assume. Yeah. So then Peter shows up and finishes the line and Otto looks at him for a moment like, wait a minute. And then, you know, Spider-Man pulls off the mask and it's his Peter. It's a Peter mm-hmm. he knows. And just like the joy and delight in Otto's eyes and similarly, you know, the same look in Peter's eyes like he's alive. Mm-hmm. Like 20 years ago in Peter's time, this man went down with the ship, you know, like he he sacrifice himself for for new york and here he is you know and it's just it's a very short but a very sweet sort of moment uh between these two characters yeah yeah alive and uh in the flesh yeah you know and i know there's a very like like father-son dynamic between norman and peter of course we we talk about that all the time 
But there's, I think, to an extent, a little bit of a father-son dynamic with Peter and Otto, too. I mean, yeah. especially like when, you know, he's welcoming him and sitting down to dinner with him, like he and his wife, there's almost a little bit of like, a, this is the son he could have had, like the way yeah. they get on so well. And so getting them to be able to to see each other again, and he's like, ah, you're all grown up. You know, yeah, it sounds no, like that, something like yeah, you're, no. you're, you're, when your grandparents or somebody would say, or your old like your old high school teacher, maybe. No, exactly. You know? like, so, like, so proud of what you've become. Yeah, like I think that's a good way to put it. I don't know if I'd say I got father and son as much. Maybe more like mentor mentee, or maybe more teacher student master student. Um, you know, somebody in that in that role. But either way, like I think it's, it's at the end of the day, it's yeah, somebody who you know he's very happy to see his protege in the present day and what, what has become of him. So I think that's, you know, that's a very sweet moment. Yeah. So, and there he is. I mean, that brings us to Tobe Maguire's Peter Parker back and on our screens again. Ah, uh, yes, this is, uh, you know, for me, my favorite part of the movie, um, as fun as it was to see, check in with our uh, favorite villains and, or, or maybe, Villain is the wrong word for some of them, but uh, hmm. yeah, the you know we get to catch up, of course, with um, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man here again, and uh, yeah, even even just introducing him on the screen was a lot of fun. You know, they have that moment there at um, at Ned's house, and <laughs> where he's uh, messing around with uh, Doctor Strange's equipment there, and uh, you know, Tobey Maguire's Peter, you know, just seems, seems like he's just as awkward as ever, kind of, uh, <laughs> you know the way he comes in through that portal there, it's just, uh, it's, it's funny, but it's also, it's, it's rewarding. It's satisfying. It's about everything you can uh, yeah. expect from that moment. So. Hello. Um, I hope it's okay. I just came through this. Uh, oh, <laughs> just closed. <laughs> yeah. It's, so, it's yeah, he's very much in character for him. It's, it's great. Yeah. It's he's a, it's just a real as treat. quiet, just as dorky, you know, just as sweet, you know? Um, I think maybe a little bit more, like confident in a sense in himself. Yeah. You know, s- still kind of dorky, but like he's Spider-Man and I think he he's he's seasoned, but um but still still that same sort of personality basically there that we all know and love. Mm-hmm. The core, the core of him never left. Yeah, yeah. And we we get to see that right away from you know just his first few seconds or so on the screen there. And it's really nice to see too that he's still like on his game, yeah. you know, like from the jump, you know, he is still Spider-Man, you know, and you can compare to, you know, another great character from another great movie, Peter B. Parker from Into the Spider-Verse. I was literally just about to say that. Um, and I, I think that's really cool because almost every, well, yeah, every Spider-Man we've seen on screen, on the big screen to this point, you know, setting aside the animated one, um, they've all been like high school or college age. So, you know, 18, 19, up to like maybe early 20s. Mm-hmm. And we've ne- we, we don't get to really see like a middle-aged or like you know, you know a Spider-Man that's well into adulthood. So I think that's really cool here that we get to see Spider-Man, you know, assuming that it's his character is keeping with the same age as Tobey Maguire in real life. And he is, um, I think, 46. Yeah. You know, he was 46 when this movie came out. And yeah, that's that's somebody that's you know getting close to 50. And yet mm-hmm. he's still, you know, like you said, you know, just as acrobatic, just as fast, has just as much of his prowess as ever. So it's nice to see. I mean, like, obviously, absolutely no disrespect to Peter B. Parker in no, that movie no. because that's great. But like, it's nice to see. It's sort of nice to have this confirmation that, you know, Peter shows up and like, I mean, he's still doing it. Like, yeah, he's got his suit on underneath and everything. So there's this assumption that like for the past 20 years, he's still just been going along mm-hmm, being mm-hmm. Spider-Man, presumably 
a supervillain crops up once in a while and he fights it and he has a whole movie's worth of story mm-hmm. that we haven't gotten to see, unfortunately, you know, now and then. And he's helping people out, you know, stopping crime. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just nice that he's kept that going. That's I don't know. It's it's nice to see that. Um, and just what a cool moment when Andrew shows up. Yeah. And they both sort of get this weird feeling about each other and they have this like flip and Toby manages like web. Andrew like right on the web shooter and mm-hmm. even Andrew like has to respect that like huh well it, it's like like I think I mentioned this in the last episode and I think uh, you know that in that moment with Andrew Garfield you see him he's having this moment where he realizes like oh this guy gets it he's just like me he understands what it's like to have these abilities that nobody else does yeah and again I think I mentioned in the last episode like about US presidents I think or or war veterans as examples of sometimes there's just only certain people you can have that camaraderie with Mm-hmm. Um, as much as other people might try to understand what your experience is, they just, they never will. Yeah. And yeah. it's really, it's really cool. It's always cool to see that happen on the screen. So like, it's really cool to see at Ned's house there, you see, um, you know, the Andrew Garfield, Spider-Man and the Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man just kind of after initially they're kind of, a, you know, they're, yeah, they have that little bit of a web shooting battle, but they kind of come to this quick understanding of like, Oh, okay. You know, he's, he's me, but just in an alternate universe. And they, you know, mm-hmm. reach that understanding and they kind of form that friendship you know right from the get-go there at least brotherhood yeah forms really quickly mm-hmm. um and i will say toby Maguire, like really takes being another in another universe in stride yeah. <laughs> probably better than most <laughs> you know? of us would i mean most of us would be freaking you know freaking out in that sort of scenario but i'm yeah, sure just, like because um... we get we sort of get to see andrew like he's sort of figured it out like he's been wandering around for like a day when he walks through the portal and he sort of gets confirmation from them that like, yeah, I'm not the Spider-Man you know of because I, obviously like both of these Spider-Mans are seeing the news or seeing Jameson talking about what's going on. Mm-hmm. So they're aware and they're both like kind of trying to figure out, okay, how can I help? Which I love. I love that they fall into this universe and they're like, okay, we have to help this kid mm-hmm. uh, because of course they're Spider-Man. It's what they do. Yeah. But um, I, I love seeing Andrew like piece it together. Like, you know, matter displacement, you know, quantum, you know, like string theory, it's all real. And we don't really get to see Peter having like a similar like epiphany, mm-hmm. but presumably he had something similar because he's also been wandering around the city aware that he's in another universe. And he says like, you know, I've actually been looking for your friend. I, I get the sense that he needs help mm-hmm. to which Andrew says our help, you know, and he's like, yeah, which I love. He comes to this universe. I, I guess I have to assume then that like, over the years, Toby must have had some pretty crazy stuff happen to his Spider-Man as yeah. well. If, you know, you take walking through portals <laughs> and falling through universes in stride, you know. I mean, heck, you figure just a couple of years after being Spider-Man, he fought an alien. So well, yeah, who knows what I happened mean, since then? Even just in his own universe. Yeah, you figure um, just in his first couple of years, you're right. He's seen some stuff and um, portals to another dimension doesn't really seem that crazy when you have aliens that can come from outer space. You can have you know, humans become fused with sand particles when you have human enhancement serums that can turn you insane, when you can become fused with nanotechnology that can that gives you additional limbs. So nothing is shocking. Yeah, exactly. And even that similar banter when they're talking about their villains and Andrew mentions like, yeah, you know, Max <laughs> Dillon, you know, great guy until he fell into a vat of eels one day. <laughs> and Toby's like, ah, that'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I know I just love hearing them just so casually, (laughs) you know, so flippantly comment on this on these things that in any other time or setting would be just beyond remarkable. But yeah, um, yeah, he just 
yeah, you know, that's an average Tuesday, in the, you know, for us, uh, you know, oh, yeah, some <laughs> guy falls into a vat of, you know, genetically enhanced eels or somebody, you know, somebody becomes ensconced in alien symbiote, you know, eh, you know, right, that's your run of the mill. Uh, that's what you sign up for when you're Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah. I do find it interesting, though, that like Toby in this movie acknowledges, oh, yeah, I felt like a black alien goo from outer space once because I kind of feel like in Spider-Man 3, it doesn't like really sink into him when Connors tells him. Uh, I think this fell from a meteor, you know, I don't think it really sinks to him that like he's messing with an alien yeah. on him. You know, I think he's kind of like so overwhelmed by the influence of the symbol. Well, at that, that moment, like, he's also kind of craving cookies. So, you know, his mind is. Well, that's not, true, too. He's not really paying attention when <laughs> Dr. Connors is trying to explain, you know, what the, what this thing is. He's kind of obviously you can tell his, his attention's a little, you know, he's a little distracted. He's a little bit focused on yeah. other things. Well, and he is just so like air getting sort of out of it under the influence of the symbiote that like it just really doesn't like connect with him but it is interesting to sort of hear that like yeah he probably there was probably a day some point after spider-man 3 where he sat down and was like dang i was wearing an alien from outer space yeah. there's life in space <laughs> you yeah, know and all that, that sort of like that's true sinks in with him hmm. so it's sort of interesting to hear him like actually acknowledge like yeah i i that was an alien wasn't it <laughs> yeah that, that's a good point but I, I, I guess as far as like adventures go, we can probably assume that Toby hasn't been to space because he was pretty shocked to hear that Tom had been to space. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm still sort of on the thing that like you went to space. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, so it, it's kind of cool to see that even for somebody who's been through as many crazy adventures as um, yeah, the Toby Maguire Spider-Man, there's there are still things that even he finds like kind of incredible. Yeah. Or you know something else to use his own phrase. Um <laughs> So, yeah, that's kind of cool to see him have, like, that little moment of childlike wonder. Like, wow, you went to space? Like, that's so cool. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting to see, hear him a little bit older, a little bit wiser, a little bit more confident, a little bit more sure of himself, a little bit more even-keeled, you know? He's just not quite as, you know, given to mood swings or dramatic changes of his mood. He's a little bit more steady, for lack of a better word. And it's kind of yeah. interesting to hear him reflect on his you know his adventures from days gone by with that um you know different with that more mature perspective yeah he is like he does seem like this like fulfilled version of spider-man like the, almost this like as ideal of a spider-man as mm-hmm. you can get you know when peter of this universe is going through his darkest moments you know and they're all sort of commiserating mm-hmm. on the rooftop of the school it's the Toby Peter that sort of mentions like, you know, I went through a similar darkness. It took me a long time to learn to get through that darkness, mm-hmm. um, which I think sort of encapsulates, you know, that night that we saw in Spider-Man 1, where like he says, I went after the man that I thought killed my uncle. I want him dead. Mm-hmm. I got what I wanted and it didn't help, you know, mm-hmm. so we it encapsulates that. And I think even when he says working through the darkness, I think that certainly must expand to Spider-Man 3 as well, when oh, he sort of sure. has to relitigate sure. and relive that all over again. And certainly, he went through a lot of darkness in Spider-Man mm-hmm. 3. But it's nice to hear him say that, like, it took him a long time, but he got through it. Yeah. He's through the darkness now. That's the and, old, uh, well, isn't there an old saying, like, the only way out of the forest is through it? Isn't that isn't that a saying? It sounds like a saying. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've heard that somewhere. The only way... Maybe Is that from a movie? Or... But anyway, um, yeah. So like, you know, the only way out of the darkness is uh, to just to, just to go through it, which is what, um, which is yeah. what he did. And he's through it now. And so we ha- we see this Peter that's like just at the beginning of his, you know, his worst day yeah. of his life, and he's at the beginning of his Spider-Man journey. Mm-hmm. And then we see this other Peter 
that has gone through a lot of darkness, the loss of Uncle Ben, the loss of Gwen, and he's still in it. In fact, he's sort of succumbing to it, he tells us. You know, he's kind of stopped pulling his punches. Mm -hmm. He's getting a little darker. And then we have this we have this older Peter who he's gone through it and mm-hmm. he's he's sort of fulfilled. He's like the ideal Spider-Man. He's sort of like the ultimate form mm-hmm. of Spider-Man, like the the Uber Spider-Mensch, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. Um he's it. I, I like the way they sort of use that in this movie. I love seeing them come together, all these different yeah. people at like a different point in their paths. And it's just special, you know, tapping into what you've said about the only people that can really understand in this sort of like support group are those that have gone through something so similar because they're not clones or anything, you know, no, they're, they're, they're obviously not like they're, the same they're sort different, of person. different personalities, different experiences, but similar enough that, you know, they can relate, they can bond over it. They can bond over, especially I think what really opens up Tom Holland's Spider-Man to them. Cause initially, you know, after um, Aunt May dies, he's uh, at the, on the roof of the school and he's, you know, obviously very upset and the the other two Spider-Men come up and Tom Holland is about to say, don't, don't tell me you understand what I'm going through because you don't. But then as it turns out, they do. Yeah. They both lost um, one of their, you know, essentially parental figures or, you know, Gwen Stacy. They, they've lost people close to them through their own, in some part due to their own actions or inactions. And, um, you know, I think that's the moment that Tom Holland start, you know, his Spider-Man starts to open up a little bit to feel a little bit more comfortable around them. He starts to bond with them a little bit more once he realizes they do understand they do they do know what i'm going through and that brings the ball closer together which is really nice to see and i know andrew garfield has sort of spoken to that moment that like that what a profound spiritual journey all of this would be to sort of find people like you who aren't you but are so close to you and so close to like what you have gone through yeah and sort of like suggesting that there's some sort of like a grand order to the cosmos here that like you're part of a calling you know, and you can sort of commiserate and, yeah. and support each other. And, and yeah, I, I, just having Tobey Maguire, apart from, of course, like being the, you know, in a meta sense, you know, like the one that started it all in mm-hmm. cinema, it's nice to have him come in and sort of be that mature, mm-hmm. ideal Spider-Man that they're, they're working toward. Although, granted, like I said, you know, I'd say he's like as ideal as a Spider-Man can get. But I think like one of the core things about being Spider-Man is sort of like, you know, when Otto asks him later, you know, how have you been? And he repeats his line from Spider-Man 2, try to do better. <laughs> it's, it's a great callback. You know, yeah. it's a lovely moment. Yeah. And Otto probably even like re- remembers him saying that not too long ago in that moment. But so using that phrase, I mean, I think that kind of, for me anyway, sort of gets to like a core of Spider-Man. I think part of being a Spider-Man, uh, a Spider-Person, is that like you always know that you can do better, you know, like you try to do as, as much as you can do, be the best you can be. Mm-hmm. But by the vocation of your call, there's always just so much for you to, to handle and to reach out to. And you're just constantly trying to do better. Mm-hmm. You're such a good person that you know that there's always more you can do and there's always a better way you can do it. And you sort of recognize that. Like the mm-hmm. way Peter says it in No Way Home, I feel like he sort of like recognizes that's just it's just the way it is. Trying to do better, as mm-hmm. always. And so, like, that's it. Like, he's still trying to do better, as mm-hmm. always, but he's the the peak of what you want to achieve yeah. as Spider-Man. Or, or so, that's that's my interpretation he, of what I see that, on the What's that phrase here. from, like, the Greeks, like, the golden mean? It's like that perfect, ah. that perfect balance. You know, I think yes, he's... Yes, he's reached it. 
the Uber Spider Mensch. But it's not it's not always easy. It's not easy at all, actually, because um, you know, moving on to the other big question about what's what has he been up to, or how are things different now than where we left off in Spider Man Three? Uh, Mary Jane, his relationship with Mary Jane, Mary Jane Watson, uh, not Michelle Jones Watson, hmm. but um, you know what's that relationship like these days? How are things going there? And um, Peter. You know, he he says, um, you know, that it's it's difficult and it's complicated, but they're making it work. Um, you know, they don't really give us a lot more detail than that. So I guess we have to sort of, you know, fill in the blanks a little bit with our imaginations. But I obviously where we left off in Spider-Man 3, they were, uh, it was kind of in a similar state. It was difficult, complicated. They were trying to make it work, but they had obviously been through quite a bit. And I have to imagine that, you know, 15 years later, you know, there are just things that you never really can totally get closure on. Like, you know, losing their best friend, Harry. I mean, that has to... Yeah. You know, that's just something that you never really fully move on from. You kind of live with it a little bit more or, you know, it gets a little bit easier, maybe, but it never fully goes away. And I have to imagine Well, that. it is interesting to hear that he says, you know, when he's asked by Ned, like, do you have a best friend? You know, he says, I had a best friend, you know, yeah. it sort of suggests that there was really, he never really had another relationship that sort of took that place of that sort of brotherhood that they mm-hmm. had shared previously. Yeah. It's very lonely being Spider-Man, I think. Yeah. Even more yeah. so when you, know, you think about it, it's like they they lost out on they lost out on years of friendship because of everything. And he certainly lives with that regret. Exactly. Peter mentions think, in this movie too when they ask him about creating cures for these villains, he does mention, "I think I can probably come up with an anti-serum for Doctor Osborne. I've been thinking about it for a long time." Mm-hmm. You know, so that's always sort of haunted him, and he's sort of pondered what could I have done better yeah if only I had the opportunity to mm-hmm. to do something to change it and here he sort of does in a sense you know to maybe sort of help these these people and mm-hmm. you know by extension maybe prevent any more harm from coming to this Peter or anyone else that these villains mm-hmm. would want to hurt yeah well we've been talking a lot about things that are sad and tragic but you know yeah. what I hope is not tragic is how I do it our trivia game because it is time <laughs> for brilliant or lazy. <laughs> Boy, moving from uh, yeah from that into our what you know one of the more lighthearted parts of our show, uh, brilliant or lazy, <laughs> uh, with the game where Peter and I try to stump each other with increasingly difficult uh, trivia questions. We try. We try. Always trying to do better. Always trying to come up exactly, with a harder one. Exactly. So, um, Peter, I know um, I got to open the show here today, so why don't you take the first question here and try to stump me at our uh, at our game here. Okay, doke, Sean. Well, today I've got a question for you about recollection. Uh, okay. Can you recall for me the order in which the villains of this film are redeemed? Um, Neutralized, yeah. as it were, at least. Well... Obviously, uh, Dr. Octopus was first. Mm, okay. I thought I'd trick you up on that one because it doesn't happen in the finale, but okay. Yeah, right. well, no, that's like the very, he's the very first one that gets redeemed. Um, then yep, I would yep. say Sandman and then um, Green Goblin. Oh, sorry, Sean. Can you can you include the Andrew Garfield villains oh. as well? Okay. Um, okay, so Doc Ock. Mm-hmm. Then trying to remember like we had electrode did we have we didn't have oh oh then um lizard Mm -hmm. then electro sandman and then green goblin i don't think that's right but that's what i'm going with (laughs) okay um 
Well, you're definitely right about the order about the Raimi ones, mm -hmm. but uh, it was actually Flint Market was the first one to be healed uh, of his ailment in uh, mm -hmm. in, the in the finale. Okay. Yeah, Toby takes care of that, and then Otto comes in is actually the one that cures Max Electro. Hmm. Andrew cures the lizard, and then of okay. course Norman swoops in at the end, mm, and okay. Tom jabs it into his neck and uh, destroys the goblin once mm. and for all. Okay, so. So, part brilliant for getting all the Raimi ones right. And we are a Raimi Spider-Man podcast, so, you know, however you want to count that. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Interesting. Interesting twist. Um, my question is a little bit, uh, I'd say a little bit more straightforward, but I'm curious to see if you get it right. Okay. Me too. So, when we first um, see, you know, Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire come back, we're at Ned's house. What language... Is is Ned oh, speaking geez. at his house there? <laughs> like so, obviously, his grandma's you know, house. Yeah, at his grandma's I house. Suppose. I wasn't sure if it was his mom or grandma, but either way, what language are they speaking with one another? Ah, oh, jeez, ah, oh, golly, jeez, <laughs> I, I, you're you're exposing my my insular nature to the world in in my 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 ignorance uh, to the world around me. Um. Some sort of Spanish dialect? Nope. It is actually uh, Tagalog, a uh, one of the major languages of the Philippines. Tagalog. Hmm. Now, I, I think there's some Spanish in there because the Spanish colonized the Philippines for you know centuries, so I'm sure some of their language got fused with um, Tagalog there, um, just as um, anytime you have like a colonizer, some of their words get integrated with the local language and vice versa. Yeah. So, um, so I, I definitely know I heard some Spanish words here and there with, with what they were saying, but um, yeah, they mm. were actually speaking uh, Tagalog to each other. Well, that's very cool. So, and I feel very ignorant for not knowing that. <laughs> I took Spanish in, in in school, but that's that's about well, <laughs> that in Latin. That's about the extent well, of um, you know Anglophones like us are um, we're very privileged because most other countries learn our language, not the other way around. So. Yeah, we get the we get the long end of the stick on that one. <laughs> yeah, we sure do. So, um, so I guess uh, you're lazy, and I'm sort of I'm lazy. lazy. Uh, but you know, we'll yeah, do, you're sort of lazy. But as we always, as always, though, we try to do better um, each time we try around. Try to do better each time around with this game. So, so yeah, that, so a uh, good question there. I definitely uh, wasn't expecting to have the uh, the Garfield people included, but uh, you know, good uh, good, yeah. good twist there. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, speaking of Garfield, it's not just Tom Holland's Peter that's mentored by Tobey Maguire's Peter. Mm -hmm. You know, he's also sort of this mentor to to Andrew Garfield as well. You know, I think specifically about you know the scene in the the school science lab. Mm -hmm. uh, they have this moment where um, Tom and MJ are sort of having having an emotional moment, and uh, Toby notices that Andrew's sort of you know looking with admiration, maybe longing at this connection that the Peter of this world and MJ have. Mm -hmm. And it prompts Toby to ask, you have someone? Mm -hmm. It's like, nah, I got no time for Peter Parker stuff. <laughs> and then to Toby's like, oh, okay, okay. And like, he sort of has this like look on his face that makes Andrew ask with like a little bit of like shock and surprise. Like, do you? Do you yeah. have time for this stuff? Toby says, hey, it's a little complicated. Andrew's like, well, yeah, I understand. I guess it's just not in the cards for us. And then, but Toby sort of like gives him this, advice you know as an older brother would that like mm -hmm. well you know I'm, i wouldn't give up yeah i'm not going to say it's easy it took yeah. a while but we made it work yeah that, that's true it's this nice move of him encouraging andrew as well mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And of course, it's just nice for us to know that after all the trouble and turmoil of the Raimi trilogy, mm-hmm. that ultimately it's complicated. You know, it's complicated being Spider-Man. It's a strange life to live. Yeah. But he's sort of found a way to make it work well, with MJ. Uh, he and MJ are making to, it work. I mean, making it work, but I'm sure I'm sure it still puts a little bit of a strain on their relationship. I mean, I think it's interesting because, again, I keep going back to this parallel, but it just reminds me a lot of um, a couple of years ago. I read uh, Michelle Obama's memoir, and I mean, she was very candid. She was very honest about her time as first lady, about being Barack Obama's wife and what it meant to be a political spouse. And it was hard because she felt like she was always sharing him with other people, you know, with his constituents, with Mm. his staff, with uh, the campaign, with everything else. It's like it felt like, you know, she was never getting the attention or her kids were getting the attention that, you know, maybe they wanted. And and I feel like it has to be a similar thing where it's like MJ maybe feels like, you know, she probably has this feeling sometimes like he's always focused on helping the people of New York. But what about me? Am I you know, being given as much priority as I should be. And I think that's like just one of those things that, I mean, no matter, maybe as you get older, it gets easier to deal with it or figure, you know, you figure things out, but it never fully goes away. And that's kind of the impression I got from reading uh, Michelle Obama's memoir that it's like, it got more manageable as they got older, but it was never fully resolved because even when he was president, there were, you know, there were plenty of times where she wrote where she, she just, you know, regretted that that was their life. She, wish that they weren't in the public eye. She wished that things wow. were different. So it was just, it was very interesting. And I have to imagine for Peter and MJ, it's kind of a similar thing at times where it's like, yeah, maybe there are times that she's really proud of him and she's really excited and happy that she gets to be you know the only person that is, you know, that knows him like this. But at the same time, there probably has to be a side of her that wishes he was just a normal guy and that they didn't have that additional burden imposed on them. So I don't know. Well, heck, I'm sure there's a part of Peter that wishes he was just an ordinary guy. I'm sure I I'm sure that I'm sure there is too, but there is also something that keeps him, you know, coming back to that. And I think again, Barack Obama, same thing. It was like he could have stepped away from politics and just been a normal guy working at a law firm or something, but something called to him. And so, like likewise with Peter, something calls to him. Yeah. And uh, I'm not trying to take make a political stance one way or another with any of this. It's just I find it just an interesting parallel to the unique pressure that I think the partners in these relationships have. It's, it's not something that they necessarily sign up for when they get, when they get together with that person. Yeah. You know, but it becomes, part- I mean, we see that visualized pretty well at the end of Spider-Man too, where she's, you know, proud and supportive of him. Go get him tiger. But then, you know, she, he swings off and she's just stuck there alone. And yeah, it's gotta be hard. It's not an easy life. It's gotta be hard. And I'm sure it takes a lot of effort and a lot of understanding. And, you know, it kind of makes me think of a moment Later on in No Way Home, when <laughs> there's there's a great moment where, you know, he's talking to Andrew and Andrew's like, I'm lame. It's like, you are not lame. Let's work on this self-talk a little yeah. bit. You're amazing. Can you say that? Can you say you're amazing? And it's a great meta joke. You know, it's a great meta compliment to Andrew Garfield as an actor and as mm-hmm. a Spider-Man and toward his films, which is really nice to see coming from, you know, Tobey Maguire. But I think, you know, in like a character sense, sort of like how we talked about the way that, you know, there's sort of a joke wrapped around this, you know, him talking about Harry. He calls it says it heartbreaking, and that's true. Uh, it's kind of funny the way it's delivered, but it, there's a truth to it in the character. Mm-hmm. Kind of similar to that. That's sort of an example of, like, the empathy and support that Peter, like, probably should have, like, been helping MJ with in Spider-Man mm-hmm. 3. You mm-hmm. know, instead of, like, the horse thing, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, but to me, that sort of says that, like, after all these years maybe through this relationship with MJ, he has sort of learned to like, say like, hey, hey, hold on, hold on. You're, you're talking yourself down a little bit. 
let's try to like really appreciate yourself here for a moment. You know, this sort of affirmational yeah. support hmm. and empathy that sort of suggests to me like a more mature depth to him. Yeah. That he probably has in his relationship with MJ now hmm. as well that we didn't really see as much, certainly in Spider-Man 3. So as, for, as, as much as we're as much as we given here, you know, about where these characters are nowadays, there are definitely still quite a few gaps that were kind of left to fill in or sort of just speculate or imagine. So. And, you know, that was like very much sort of what Toby wanted to do with this. Eric Summers and Chris McKenna, the, the screenwriters of this film, yeah. they want to be like very specific. They yeah. want to like give a lot of information to the audience about catching them up with these mm -hmm. characters, but not so much that it felt fan servicey too much. Mm -hmm. But they said Tobey Maguire was very keen on like giving away as little as possible, like being yeah. pretty reserved mm. with the information that he gave. And I have to wonder why. I don't. Does he want to keep the door open? I hope so. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> to, to really explore that later. That, that's a good point. But um, or maybe just because um, it's one of those things where maybe it's they think it's more fun for us fans to kind of imagine like we have our own headcanon for what yeah that could for be where too. these characters are and it's kind of like you know this way we get to check in with them but it doesn't mess up too many things that maybe we have you know that we imagine. I think you're right. That could be part of it because like such a well beloved and established character like Peter Parker, like we all sort of have an idea of what he's going to be like when he's older, and so the less yeah. they tell us, the more we're able to sort of project our own headcanon yeah. onto that and so it can sort of make us all happy so maybe a, a smart move in that capacity there's definitely a downside um to you know giving too much away for these characters in the present day because it kind of it can sort of erode what positive things you carried over from the original you know work and if it's something that you think like oh well that's that's ridiculous they would never you know have this happen to them you know it doesn't sure you, know, you, you take away that source of controversy you nip it in the bud um so either way yeah, it's, it was great to see yeah, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, a little bit older, a little bit wiser, be that mentor to him and kind of help him, give him some good advice and some good guidance to, you know, to the Andrew Garfield, to the younger Spider-Man, to help him work through that darkness, to help him work through the rough times and realize that you know, things are maybe dark right now, but it won't always be dark. You know, and you have the power to bring that light to yourself, to your life, and make things a little bit better. Yeah. And so you know, seeing Toby doing that for both Andrew and Tom in this movie... He really does sort of slot right into this film, uh, into this film series, the the Home trilogy, the Homecoming trilogy, as like yet another of these mentors mm -hmm. for Peter. You know, like we've talked in the last episode, I think that legacy and your place in legacy and like mentorship is a big recurring idea in these films. And we see that here, not only with the things we've talked about, but the Tobey Maguire Peter even gets to sort of like carry on Aunt May's through line mm -hmm. through this film. Earlier on in the film, at Feast, when Peter encounters Norman Osborn for the first time, Aunt May sees Norman Osborn, realizes how like lost he is in his mind, how much help he needs. She suggests to Peter that it's your responsibility to help these people. Mm -hmm. And Peter says, wait, no, no, no. Like, this isn't my problem, which again, you know kind of reverberating through the cosmos you know i missed the part where that's my problem mm -hmm. or uh even like andrew's version of that like it's not my policy <laughs> not quite the same ring to it but but yeah so that sort of same idea reverberating through the cosmos is sort of like hesitance like no this isn't my problem mm -hmm. and aunt may says not your problem and she sort of like touches his shoulders like touches his suit his spider-man suit and says like look around you this is what we do we help people they're here in the feast center 
We give hope to people that need hope. We give help to people that need help. Mm-hmm. And then, like, of course, Peter loses her. And, like, all that, you know, all those words that she spoke to him, you know, sort of are falling apart in his mind as the goblin wanted to happen. Mm-hmm. Her holy moral mission, you know, he wants to destroy all that in Peter's mind. But when it comes to creating the cures in the lab, you know, they, they divvy out who's going to be curing whom. Mm-hmm. And... You know, Toby offers to cure Norman and, you know, the Tom Peter, Peter Prime here is like very hesitant toward that. But Toby reminds him, like, got to cure all of them. Right. And Peter says, right. And then Toby says, that's what we do. Hmm. So sort of like re- echoing those words back to him that like this is the calling. Mm-hmm. And, and because Aunt May said that first, this is her philosophy. Mm-hmm. We, you know, these Spider-Mans are all living that philosophy, that great power comes great responsibility philosophy. And then again. The rule of threes, as they're leaving at the end of the film, you know, the Peter of this universe is just so effusive. He's trying to, like, thank them. He can't even put into words how much he appreciates mm-hmm. how this this incredible cosmic coincidence that led to them being here and helping him through his darkest day. And he's trying to put into words, and Toby stops him. He says, Peter, you know, it's what we do. Yeah. And, and Peter says in response, like, yeah, it's what we do. So, like, that continues there the art continues there that like this is just what we do this mm-hmm. is who we're all called to be and it's nice to have like it be peter like the, again this like idealized sort of like final stage of peter mm-hmm. being the one to continue echoing aunt may's words to him through this film yeah you know as the mentor and that that mentorship that peter exhibits for tom it's sort of like almost exemplified put into action again you know in that moment with the absolute poetry of peter stopping the glider from impaling norman like what 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 an incredible moment for the film too the 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 peter prime the peter of this world is so demoralized and so Mm -hmm. beaten down yeah by the vileness of the green goblin attacking him on every possible level mental emotional physical and it's very nearly too much for, for Tom. Tom goes to pick up that glider. He's getting ready to impale well, Norman, just, which again... As a side note, I mean, it's almost startling, shocking to see Tom Holland's Spider-Man just so enraged like that. It's yeah, it's kind of scary, actually. It's terrifying. Because yeah. he's usually kind of goofy, lighthearted, you know, always kind of the comic relief or kind of has this sort of youthful innocence about him. And it is just it's really heart wrenching to see him just like almost like this primal sense of yeah. rage of anger. It's kind of scary to see him just beating up uh, green goblin like that toward the end there. It's just very, we've compared it to that like final fight between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader too. Yeah. And like, I want to sort of pull on that thread of that comparison too, because um, something that always strikes me about that scene with Luke fighting Darth Vader is it's a, you know, it's ostensibly an action scene Mm -hmm. you know there's a sword fight happening but the music is in no way exciting it's like this tragic male chorus Mm -hmm. lamenting what's happening and it it, it's telling us very clearly this is desperate this is sad this is tragic Hmm. again john williams genius as always in this moment in this scene michael giacchino actually does something very similar with the film music it similarly has this chorus playing, hmm. this like slow, 
churning course sort of lamenting what we're seeing and it's similarly it's tonally similar and it is very scary and we realize how close we're getting to peter basically losing you know he could kill the goblin and peter will have lost Mm -hmm. win the battle but lose the war yeah yeah and i think that you know with norm norman's dying breath he'd be laughing and smiling because he would know that he's won Mm -hmm. he's successfully corrupted peter but that's when the Tobey Maguire Peter jumps in out of nowhere. The absolute poetry of him catching that glider, stopping it from impaling Norman as it you know once did before, and as he was once unable to prevent before. Mm-hmm. You know, if he could have spared Norman's life, he would have. You know, certainly. But you know, now he's doing that now, and just just through the sheer look in his eyes to Tom, you know, saying like, "This is not what we do." You know, this mm-hmm. is not being Spider-Man. Probably sort of like trying to use himself as an example like i've gone through this and i'm telling you yeah. this isn't the way you will you will not get the satisfaction from this that you think you will right and that's what he said it doesn't make it better it doesn't bring back you know it doesn't bring back aunt may you don't feel any better you feel worse afterward you will feel worse maybe you won't maybe right now you don't feel that way but you will i'm trying to save you from what i went through i'm trying to spare you that heartache that torment and and i mean the toby peter i mean he's got plenty of reasons to hate norman to still hold anger against him as Tom does now just for what ended up happening with Harry. He lost Harry because of Norman ostensibly. This man jeopardized the lives of some of the most important people to him, Aunt May, MJ, and not to mention all the other people that the Green Goblin killed. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately it gets through to Tom, you know, all of that sort of finally sinks through to Tom. And it just, I find it a very powerful moment because there is sort of like this cycle, like, on the one hand, like we know Norman was already slated to die by being impaled by his glider. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, history was going to repeat itself already when Harry also dies by being impaled by a glider. So I think it's like especially significant for Peter to like break this cycle. He is like res- restoring hope, mm-hmm. sort of like writing a past wrong <laughs> in this moment. And then even then, even then, Norman stabs Peter for it because that's so... Green Goblin, you know, (laughs) even Norman Osborn, like that is so him to stab someone in the back as soon as they stop being an advantage to him. Mm -hmm. But even having been stabbed, Toby still wants him to be healed. Toby smiles when Andrew trucks the formula to Tom. Tom jabs into Goblin's neck and Toby smiles when when that happens. He's 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 glad, you know, he's not vengeful. He's glad that they were able to heal him, even if he would have died for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a powerful lesson for Tom. And then crucially, <laughs> Goblin stabbing Peter could have been like the thing that pushes Tom to like say, okay, you know what? Aunt May was wrong. Tobey Maguire was wrong too. I'm just going to kill him anyway. Mm-hmm. But it's not. Like in that moment, like the lesson has gotten through to Tom. And even despite, you know, the backstabbing nature of the Goblin, he still wants to save Norman mm-hmm. within. So he actually makes that final call himself. You know, the Tom Holland Peter proving he's he's finally accomplished that. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, um, yeah. So, and so great, yeah, that uh, allows moment. Tom to have the opportunity to do exactly what Aunt May had wanted, which is to help people because he could. And so he did. Uh, he sends all these people back to where they came from, ostensibly, but cured of their ailments, mental or physical things that are maybe holding them back from 
being the truest version of themselves you know, before the accidents that they all mm-hmm. had. Because this film is about second chances. And, you know, passing goodness on from one person to another person. Because, you know, when you help someone, you help everyone, as Aunt May says. So is there any hope for the former supervillains return to their worlds? Is there hope for these second chances in these new timelines that have now split into new realities? What sort of world are they returning to then? Like what now happens when they go back to these worlds? What sort of lives do they have? And we can only speculate about that, which we will do now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, it's always fun to imagine these sorts of what ifs or what could be by the very nature of this movie, it allows us to kind of indulge in that sort of fantasizing. You sort of hit the nail on the head right there when you said, what if? Yeah. And, you know, much like Uatu the Watcher of Marvel lore, gazing across the vast timelines of the cosmos, let's see if we can sort of figure out what happens here. One of my questions, well, or at least one of my, one of my musings, is exactly like, what happens with the timelines themselves once there's such a significant change in it? Because when you think about it, Toby only knows how to cure the goblin formula because he's been thinking about it so much. Yeah. You know, he's been dwelling on it and thinking about it. And that only happens because the goblin died in the first place. And then Mm -hmm. maybe also because Harry died. So if goblin goes back to a world and he's no longer goblin, he's just Norman. And Peter never has that experience. Then Peter never dwells on it. And Peter never learns how to cure him. And then when Peter comes to Tom's reality, he doesn't know how to cure him. Sort of a grandfather I was paradox. Just about, I was just about to where, say, you know, yeah, the movie that codified a lot of these tropes or that at least made us think about them, of course, one of your favorites, Peter, Back to the Future. Absolutely. It, time travel, at least for me, it's like you think about it for too long and it just all sort of falls apart. So it's hard. Right. At least, at least that's, you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, <laughs> not enough of a scientist myself to you know, maybe think about these intricacies with more nuance, but... Same here. Well, I mention it because I do think it sort of bears mentioning because that sort of factors into what I imagine then happens in these timelines. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you mentioned Back to the Future, of course, and in Back to the Future, you get to change your reality. And I sort of think that, like, your mind just goes along with the change. You know, like, you... um probably have all, a whole new set of memories from like growing up with a different childhood with, mm-hmm. you know, parents that have a vastly different type of marriage, but it doesn't necessarily look like Marty remembers any of that. Yeah. You know, then similarly, sort of, there's, you know, a show that is near to my heart called uh, Doctor Who, where <laughs> similarly, you can change a single timeline and still be a part of it, but you just end up holding two different sets of memories in your mind. So you remember huh. the way it was, and then you remember the new way. And that's sort of rationalized by saying, well, sometimes you have deja vu. Sometimes you have a memory that doesn't make sense. Hmm. That's what it is. That's the explanation. That kind of reminds me also of just as another example that, um, you know, Rick and Morty, they have that relatively early episode in season one where I think it's the one where, you know, everything gets Cronenberg is uh, what they call it. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, Rick and Morty, then they, they uh, I know it's not technically time travel, but then they go to a dimen- like an alternate dimension where they have the same memories, but their counterparts in that other dimension die in an, a- in an accident. Right. And so they just take right. their places. Even though- And so the people that it's weird because the people that died had the same memories as them, but they're, they were different people nonetheless. And so it's kind of, right. I think that's a good example. 
because I think you sort of hit on something there because you know the timeline in the Cronenberg universe is the same up until yeah that moment when everything went awry in the timeline that one universe with Rick and Morty it's fine up until the moment where they die like you said it's the same universe the same reality up until that one point yeah and at that point it sort of branches off and becomes something totally new and so that's why Rick and Morty can sort of step into the other one. Mm-hmm. as themselves and just keep it going with exactly barely a feather ruffled exactly so that kind of brings us to then the way the mcu sort of does timelines i mm-hmm. know you haven't seen the show loki sean but on the show loki i think this bears mentioning mm-hmm. there's this concept of a nexus event hmm. a nexus okay. event so like a timeline goes along and then all of a sudden something happens that's just too different hmm. and it skews off into a new timeline so the previous timeline keeps going as it was yeah but then there's a new one separate from it and so if that's the way the mcu goes that's sort of what i'm what i think happens here and i mention all of that because that avoids the grandfather paradox here then yeah because that means that spider-man one two and three and for that matter amazing spider-man one and two all happened the same you know, Norman still dies. Otto still dies. So that way we still have that Peter from the future that remembers those things happening mm-hmm. because it did happen to him. But we also skew off into a new timeline where Norman goes back and he's he is alive. Hmm. And so then something totally different happens there. So part of what I guess I'm saying is that conceivably, if there's a Spider-Man 4, Norman won't be alive. Otto won't be alive, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Because it'll still be, I assume, in that same timeline yeah. from before. But somewhere there is a new timeline where, yeah, Norman comes back to it healed, Otto comes back to it healed, and things change drastically from that. Mm-hmm. The question then remains, is it a good change or a bad change? Yep. Big change. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we, we mentioned the Goblin a couple times there. I think he's one of the most interesting cases to talk about here because like what what possibly happens now? Yeah, if he if he's um returned to his time, you know, to this new timeline as a remade man, you know, free of this goblin influence and, and able to kind of resume his life. I mean, w- talk about getting a second chance. Talk about just having a chance to start over, start fresh. I, I guess it's like what does Norman do with that second chance? I mean, mm-hmm. he, he has a new outlook, a new appreciation maybe for what he had. I mean, knowing that it, it, it was all about to be lost. I don't know. It kind of reminds me of like, it's a wonderful life. You know, it's just go, you know, going through some sort of transformative experience like that can really, I mean, it's a story that we all love to see. I mean, that movie has been played every Christmas for almost 80 years now. Yeah. For good reason. I mean, that's what, that's what happened to George Bailey. He realized what, it would have been like if he hadn't been there. Sure. I mean, yeah, a little bit different, but same idea of. And yeah, it's not. It's not quite like that. It, though, it isn't, isn't though. No, it's not. Just but because it's just something I'm thinking about it just, as just a comparison. Where. Well, what I'm getting at is that like he goes back and he's you know he's still a murderer. <laughs> yeah. You know he he now has to reckon with sort of the evil things that he's done, that were you know in large part uh, you know some sort of extenuating circumstances beyond his normal realm of capability to deal with yeah to control uh so there's you know extenuating mitigating circumstances well, I, and there. honestly i mean you talk about extenu- you know, mitigating circumstances i mean and that is a phrase that obviously sees relevance in the legal system 
But let's say, you know, Norman somehow was able to pull off, you know, an insanity defense that he had no idea what he was doing. And so he's able to escape life in prison as a result of that. But not, I think for anybody, if they found out that, um, you know, as part of some blind rage or something, if they did these horrible things, they, they, that would be, it'd be too much to bear. I mean, I don't know. I mean, those are some very profound questions. Well, I will say, too, you know, once the goblin side of him is exercised from him at the end of No Way Home, we don't get much of him after that. But he looks absolutely remorseful and petrified and uh, so emotional, like on his knees, questioning, you know, what have I done when he sees, you know, Toby laying there. So I think he's going back with going to be a pretty heavy conscience, Mm -hmm. you know, like sort of a winter soldier thing going mm-hmm. on here. Like, I know I killed so many people, did so many horrible things. I know it wasn't really me. I know there were other circumstances going on, but like, but still I did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, that's whatever his life is going to be like, you know, it's going to be very challenging. I don't know if he um, turns himself in, you know, because he still has, you know, you know, the, the goblin could just disappear. No one would know whatever happened. Yeah, um, I, and Or if he I would turn himself in, yeah, I don't know. That's a good point. But, well, but I think we've talked about this, though. I do think that uh, the circumstantial evidence would catch up to him. I think they would be able to figure out at some point that Norman Osborn could be. was the guy that was in this costume. But at the same time, you know, he would probably, again, I think he'd have a very good shot, you know, at an insanity defense or, you know, he'd be able to argue that he didn't have uh, the same culpability that you would need to find somebody guilty. Sure. Well, one thing I like to imagine, for one thing, let's assume that he gets off either by, you know, like like you said, one of those legal arguments or, you know, perhaps just kind of lets the goblin die and just yeah. lets it weigh in his conscience and doesn't come forward to face any action, just leaves it at that. In any case, one idea that I find sort of compelling is that maybe part of what he does to sort of alleviate his conscience then is to maybe sort of become sort of a benefactor for Peter Parker. For Spider-Man, you know, now that he has this greater understanding of Peter, of what Spider-Man is, you know, he still has that appreciation of what Spider-Man, he knows who he is. He could sort of become sort of like a Tony Stark figure now to the Tobey Maguire Peter of that reality, sort of supplying him with different Oscorp tech and Mm -hmm. and whatnot. Then, of course, that raises some questions, you know, does he continue then to neglect Harry or does, you know, maybe can he nurture that better father side of himself? Mm -hmm. Do they continue to not tell Harry? No one likes to tell Harry anything. <laughs> like, do they not tell Harry they're secretly working together to fight crime and corruption in New York? Presumably, in any case, Harry doesn't become the new goblin. Yeah. So he doesn't die. None of that happens. Unless there is a reality in which, you know, he goes back and faces some sort of legal action and is put away and Harry thinks it's unjust and then decides to avenge him or mm-hmm. something. But yeah, I mean, presumably. Harry never becomes the new goblin. For all we know, maybe MJ really just becomes so fed up with Peter in his symbioted out form that she just really breaks up with him at the end of Spider-Man 3. Or heck, maybe since they're so close friends, Harry is a bigger help in helping Peter get through that dark time of the symbiote. And so things never have to get that oh, bad. And we're, and we're still, I mean, we're still assuming that that even happens, that the symbiote still comes down and does its thing with uh with you know peter in that movie but uh yeah i mean well i mean it just sort of fell out of the sky one day so i mean i'm sure it would still come down that's the one i mean i suppose 
if we want to think about the butterfly effect, maybe the way things worked out, they wouldn't be in that place at that time. Exactly. Here in MJ. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> like, like maybe if they saw Harry, they would have hung out afterward instead, you know, instead of having a web hammock yeah. makeout session. They would have gone out to eat as a group or something. Well, that's, that's what and I so mean. So they wouldn't like, have been near Venom. Who knows? You're right. Well, because um, I, I saw somebody point out that... Um, yeah, if Norman had survived and he, you know, he was still running Oscorp, then Harry wouldn't have become, you know, the uh, leader of special research projects, and then in turn they would not have, uh, you know, uh, gifted all that money or given all that money to um, Doctor Octavius to do his experiments. And so, who know, who knows how things could have changed? Um, who knows if Octavius would have done what he did? Or then again, um, you know, as we found out in this movie, he and Norman clearly knew each other. They knew each other personally. Um, so I, I, I don't know. Maybe Norman would have taken an interest in the fusion project. Uh, I mean, so it's, or maybe he already did. And we just never heard about it on screen. Maybe, I mean, we did sort of theorize that, you know, there's a connection between uh, Norman's nanotechnology and the nanowire technology yeah. in Doc Ock suit. So who knows? Maybe that would have happened regardless. Well, it, we it, don't know. And, well, it's up to whatever the writer decides. Well, you know? I think, uh, you know, Dr. Octavius had been working on that. That's not, he, a project of that like that is a lifetime achievement. Oh that, yeah, that's not that's something. His life's work. Yeah. That's not something that he could just pull off in a couple of years between the movies. It's like that's something he would have been working towards, you know, doing research toward for decades probably. So I think it's safe to say that Norman would have known about it, even if he maybe wouldn't have. Uh, maybe if maybe even if Oscorp had not, you know, forked over the money for it, I still think Norman mm -hmm. would have known about it had he survived. Uh, yeah, so. I mean, heck, even if it didn't work with Oscorp, he would have taken it to Quest Aerospace. He would have taken <laughs> it to wherever else he could have, you know, to get that project off the ground. Like you said, it's his life's work, so he wasn't stopping it at any by any means. Mm -hmm. So, but that does bring us then to Doctor Otto Octavius. Um, so Doc Ock is a little bit of a tricky case here when it comes to returning to his universe in the hopes of having a uh, a better life, um, because. Yeah, he's a changed person, but he's basically going right back to a time where he was already on the cusp of being a changed person yeah. and already about to face, yeah. you know, his heroic sacrifice. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and that's sort of assuming that he goes back to that same time. If he goes back too early or too late in that timeline, I mean, too early would work out better for him. He might have more of a chance to stop things mm -hmm. from exploding, going haywire. But going back too late and there's no... New York to go back to, it seems like. Yeah, that, yeah, if it puts him right back to that point where he was about to be redeemed anyway, kind of. On the surface, I mean, it looks like he's only worse for wear. He's got one less tentacle, thanks to Normie. So that's one less uh, tool he has in his final fight. But yeah, I mean, you know, because that's, uh, that's exactly the moment that he says he came from, you know, when he had mm. Peter by the throat. And that's right before Peter helps him make the final switch to the good side. Yeah. And he already seemed a little confused about what happened just before he crossed over to this realm. Mm -hmm. So I sort of have to wonder, like, was he even able to remember and process that his machine was about to, you know, that it was self-sustaining, that it was just going to keep going and there was no mm -hmm. way to stop it? So does he even remember what he's going back to? Yeah. <laughs> be a pretty rude awakening. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say, boy, if you're transported back to that, you know, that's a little, that's a, talk about sensory overload. Yeah. But here's... Here's my potential out for Otto. Maybe, just maybe, he was aware enough of what was going to happen. And in that time that he sort of flees from the movie, No Way Home, mm -hmm. you know, after Electro blasts him out the window and he goes on the lam for a little bit, 
there's some time that passes before he returns in the finale. Maybe he was working on some sort of solution for when he goes back. You know, he had some time to think. Presumably, I'm sure he could find his way to get access to that um, Tony Stark's fabricator Mm -hmm. that uh, Happy had at his apartment. Maybe he could whip something up to help him. Furthermore, last time we see the arc reactor, Doc Ock has it. Now, that's a vessel capable of generating a lot of energy, Mm -hmm. possibly of containing a lot of energy, too. So, Hmm. I don't know. Going back with another vessel for having the power of the sun in the palm of your hand, you have to wonder if uh, a brilliant mind like Doc Ock might be able to jury-rig something together pretty quickly. Uh, when I, he gets back, I think Doctor Octopus is pretty crafty. He's pretty clever. I'm sh- he seems like he could he could you know MacGyver his way out of a lot of things. Yeah, you know I think he could uh, he could whip up a contraption out of almost anything. He's like uh, you know like MacGyver or, or Jimmy Neutron or you know whoever <laughs> else you want to think of. So mm. I wouldn't put it past brilliant him. and not lazy. No. Yeah. So no. so anyway, just putting forth a couple of potentially good outcomes for Doc Ock, and then I do want to say too, even if it still means Otto's death. You know, even if it still did play out the same way, this theme of the movie about having second chances, is it still worth it going through all of that to give Doc Ock a second chance? I think the answer is I, yes. I think, I think just yep. to give him a, a yep. sliver of a fighting chance. I would agree with that 100%. And even further, some of the other theme of the film, you know, passing goodness on, you do good, you don't know how that spreads when you help someone, you help everyone. They didn't know it, but when they helped heal Otto, he kind of was a... Uh, a turning point in their battle against the villains at the end. Yep. All three Spider-Mans were up against a wall. You know, they were, you know, they were not in a good spot until Otto came in and shifted the tide of battle there. Mm -hmm. So who would have known that that kindness, you know, would have returned to them. So worth it. Yeah, probably regardless. Yeah, I think so. I think it was the right thing to do. And, you know, the right thing to do is the right thing to do. Yeah. Even if, you know, Otto's fate would have been the same. I still think, the message of doing the right thing, even if the outcome itself isn't different. I still think that's an important thing to emphasize. Mm-hmm. I think, I think the Peter of this universe would still be happy. He did it. He would stand by that decision. Absolutely. You know, to have given them that fighting chance. So then that brings us to the last of the Raimi so-called villains, uh, the Sandman, Flint Marco. Yeah. Who we've touched on before. Yeah. I think Flint Marco, I mean, you know, he's just an interesting character. We've talked about him in other episodes. Uh, there's just, a lot of things you could talk about with his motivations and, you know, is he really, you know, it's the classic question of, um, you know, is the guy who steals bread to feed his family when they're hungry? Is that, you know, is that really the wrong thing? I I don't know. Right. Well, and that's why I think he's probably the worst off going back. I mean, sort of even compared to Doc Ock, Mm -hmm. because Doc Ock, you know, at least might be going back with some new ideas, some new tech, you know, Mm -hmm. something could be there. But Sam is only going back with less than he came with because it's not like his sand powers were ever affecting his mind in any way, like the goblin mm-hmm. formula or the, the arms. He was already just trying to steal money to save his daughter's life. He was on the run. I'm sure he gets into trouble. This is only going to make that life harder for him. Now, I'm not saying, you know, this is the best you know, that's the best way of doing things either. Yeah. But uh, he seems to have, I know once a person sort of falls to a certain level of society, it's kind of hard to find your way back out. You know, I mean, he doesn't want to just get thrown back in jail. What else is he going to do to help Penny? 
who can help Penny at that point? We're led to believe really nobody, it seems. Well, I mean, you know, her mother. Well, I mean, it seems like the money required for Penny is, yeah. it seems beyond the realm of what anyone can sort of hope to achieve <laughs> through any sort of normal career path, you know, a yeah. regular career path that you might have. I mean, Flint seemed to be taking a lot of money and we know it wasn't for himself. You know, we yeah. know that was all for his daughter. So there's seemed to be a significant amount that he needed here. So all I'm saying is going back now, living in the outskirts of society, mm -hmm. probably on the run, trying to dodge trouble as best as he can while doing what he can to help, you know, the person in his life he loves the most. Now he's got to do that without his powers, without his offense and defense abilities that helped him so much before. Yeah. Although... You know, anytime you're using powers like that, it, it attracts a lot of attention. So if you're trying to stay under the radar, having those powers can somewhat be somewhat of a liability, I would say. So That's I, true, but it also seems like anytime anyone ever pulls a gun on him, he never has to really worry. True. I mean, I, th I think he could get like shot in the back and literally brush it off. Yeah. So, you know, there's that. So that's, you know, we talked about before in the last episode, he's sort of a tragic character and, you know, he continues to be such here. And probably worst of all, is the fact that now without his sand powers, his first name is no longer such a clever cosmic in-joke. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we lose the fun coincidence of his first name being Flint and he's got sand powers. So what a bummer. <laughs> that's that's probably the worst of everything here. <laughs> uh, I know. It, it, just like a guy named Otto Octavius losing his four extra limbs. I mean, that that's just yeah. such a tragedy. It's just sad. <laughs> so I, don't, I guess the best we can hope is that somehow... Flint goes back and um, maybe something about the experience helps him to, I don't know, maybe meet up with Spider-Man, try to talk out what happened. Maybe Spider-Man can put in some sort of a good word with him with the authorities. Uh, somehow they can reach some sort of agreement with, yeah, well, I don't know, that he can try to get back on the straight and narrow and still find a way to provide for his daughter. That's what I would recommend. Just face the music. Living on the run for too long. I mean, it. it's just... It's so hard, I think, to look to lo live your life looking over your shoulder like that. Oh, yeah. And I think I don't think he's doing and it. You would know. I, I don't think he's. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was on. Remember, I was on the run. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, so now we've covered Sam Raimi's uh, villains as they appear in this film and where they could end up back in new realities. But then what about the man himself, Tobey Maguire? What of his Peter Parker? Hmm. Good question. Does he go back and just have this massive existential crisis about the incomprehensible vastness of reality? <laughs> or is this more of like a hopeful spiritual odyssey that he's returning from? I would say the second choice. I think it's more of the latter. I think mm -hmm. we talked um, earlier about it would be almost a spiritual experience to mm -hmm. you go through life for, you know, in Tobey Maguire's uh, case, his Spider-Man's case, you know, 40 some years. And you think you're the only one that, knows this life and what it in the costs and the toll that it takes on you. And you suddenly are through very fantastic. And I mean that in a very literal sense, almost like something out of a fantasy, you know, through these fantastic means you're transported into a whole nother dimension. And not only that, which that in and of itself would be enough to, you know, throw people for a loop, but you're in this other dimension and you meet, uh, you know, alternate versions of yourself, almost, you know, people that have your name that have your, powers that 
have similar life stories to you. I mean, that'd be an extremely altering experience. And I think you would have to feel positive and hopeful because you're, you realize that, I don't know, there's just, there's this connection that transcends just your plane, your, your spiritual plane. There's a connection that extends and transcends into something, you know, far away from here, but yet, you know, you're still so close to them in how you can relate. I I don't know. I think it would be, I think it'd be a good thing, but I think I could also see it being terrifying at times to think about, but I think that an experience such as this would be as frightening or as encouraging as you'd want to make it. Yeah. You know? uh, and I think to Peter, he takes it in a very meaningful way. You know, like you said, there's, you know, it, it hints at some sort of great cosmic purpose for Peter Parker's everywhere and for the very mantle of Spider-Man yep. and the mantra of with great power comes great responsibility. Exactly. So, I mean, I think it's definitely like a, you know, you could look at the glass half full or half empty, but I mean, he definitely seems like he's probably going back Half full. And, you know, we talked already that he sort of seems like the fulfilled version of Spider-Man. But maybe if there was anything that could sort of push him even further into, like, believing in his purpose and his mission and, you know, to keep going no matter what, Mm -hmm. probably this whole experience probably gives him a a new and improved, even better outlook on life Mm -hmm. than he seems to have already had. So I think this could only really improve him even further as a Spider-Man and as a, just a human being. Yeah, no doubt. I think, you know, he'll carry that knowledge with him going forward. And I, I think that would have to give him a sense of resiliency and connection that he maybe just never had before. And maybe some sort of solace over, you know, that somewhere out there, you know, is Harry somewhere out there mm-hmm. is Norman Otto, you know, maybe that comforts him in some sort of way too. I but, would think but so. But what I don't know is how he possibly explains this all to MJ. <laughs> uh, Boy. Yeah, that's... Although, again, we talked earlier just about how casually, in a way, he exp- you know he t- was talking to the other Spider-Man about, yeah, I fought an alien, and, you know, an alien symbiote at one point. Yeah? Yeah, I had a best friend who tried to kill me. So, I mean, again, Peter, <laughs> they, they've been through some crazy stuff before. It's true. Is this really going to be that much of a stretch from there? You know, they've already been through... Mm-hmm. You know, the stuff with Dr. Osborne and who knows what else they've encountered. Yeah, crazy stuff must happen with them all the time. So, so yeah, so yeah. maybe this is just only a slightly more unusual Wednesday than normal. That's what I'm saying. So, like, I honestly don't think she'd be that phased <laughs> at this point after 20 years or so of this. I mean, this is just, uh, yeah, another just another day, another dollar for them. Yeah. Well, t- 20 years earlier, they both found out that, oh, what do you know? Intelligent life exists in other planets. Oh, who knew? Mm-hmm. So this is just a couple steps farther than that. Yeah, exactly. It's I, I think she would take it in stride. I think, again, I think Mary Jane, after almost 20 years of this, has probably learned to, to just go with it, learn to go with these fantastical happenings. Yeah, it sounds about right. Well, now, even though we've already had a two-part dive into this realm, I want to say there's no reason not to return to this topic at some point, because no matter the universe, there is always so much to tell. But for now, it's time to play a little game. You ready, Sean? I sure am. I'm ready to teleport into the next okay. dimension of our podcast here. <laughs> and this game is called We Are Who We Choose to Be. All right. Oh, I am so ready for this. <laughs> who, who do we think should kick off here? Oh, I, I, I'm going to go first. I'm just going to claim that mantle. Uh, right Take it now. away, buddy. All right. I... Wish I had an hourglass for this Uh-oh. because <laughs> would you rather have to pick out and count every grain of sand that 
Sandman left on the couch in uh, Happy's apartment, or would you rather? I already don't like this. Or would you rather have to commute between dimensions for your job at Oscorp? <laughs> you know, ah. and let's just say that to get between dimensions, there's a toll, and you can't pay it with Easy Pass. There's a toll, and I can't pay with Easy Pass. Yep. Just to uh, just to be difficult. Let's just you know, this is all about sadistic choices. You have to commute between dimensions, which requires a special kind of gas. Oh jeez. There is a toll that you can't pay with Easy Pass, and uh, it's a you know two hour commute each way. So it's a it's a crappy commute, but you work at Oscorp with Doctor Osborne, which is pretty cool. You know all the prestige that comes with that, plus the novelty that you can use of saying, "I work in another dimension." <laughs> And, you know, it being totally true. Yeah. Big fun at parties. Or you can pick out and count one by one every single grain of sand that was left in the couch. You say it's a two hour commute to another dimension? Two hours each way. Yes, sir. What's the point of the portal then? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just I'm just saying, you know, to get to the portal, there's a there's a line, you know, if, if you're. Holy cow. You know, let's say the portal only is, a, is available at certain spots. To get to that spot, you have to you know drive through rush hour traffic each day. It's a pain in the butt, but sure is. You get to work in another dimension at Oscorp, and you get paid very <sighs> well for it. Yeah, assuming Norman's back to his yeah. you know decent guy self. I, I but, know uh, a lot of my questions revolve around you know, dealing with the Osbournes in some way because I just <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Let's say for this question that you know you do get Norman in his better state of mind as your boss, which is. Sure. Should be some comfort, but uh Well, I mean, I don't even like having to like leave my house to run to the store for groceries, let alone commuting, let alone commuting to another dimension. Uh I mean now if it was just if it was really just walking through a portal and I'm there, I mean that sounds lovely, but I think as it stands, uh I could probably listen to some music and be done with the counting the grains of sand a lot faster than it would take me to be commuting. So, well, I he, think we're going to have to go with that. Okay. <laughs> what would you do? I don't know. I, I feel like there's so many grains of sand. I, I mean, two-hour commute, though. That's a pretty rough commute. I'd probably go with the grains. Both of, ways, you said. Yeah, that's four hours a day commuting. Um, but I could probably be done <laughs> counting the sand in four hours, or at least a week's worth of commuting. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> then then we're just done with it 20 hours uh that yeah i i would agree i would pick i would count the grains of sand i mean you know then it's it, not fun but you know somebody's gotta do it apparently happy's that much of a stickler yeah no he wants he's he's so he wants to make sure every grain is out of that couch well he's pretty upset that his apartment got trashed so uh yeah that's it that's it that's your punishment you have to pick out every single grain of sand and count it every single every grain must be accounted for are we assuming then that because my name is Peter, I also accidentally got transferred into this universe and now I'm stuck doing this. All the other Peters got to do the cool thing. I got to take all the grains of sand out of Happy's yep, apartment. I guess, I guess so. That's <laughs> them's the breaks. Dang. <laughs> Happy. Uh, no, I'm annoyed. <laughs> Dr. Strange really screwed up this spell. I tell you. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> In any case, that I suppose that brings me to my question for you now, Sean. Okay, all righty. What would you rather have if you had to have one of these sets? Would you rather have Doc Ox arms attached around you, or would you rather have the Iron Spider of the MCU arms? Hmm. What would you What would you prefer to have in life? Hmm. 
Now, the Iron Spider arms, are they retractable? So, you know, in other words, am I walking around all the time with the arms out? And... They are retractable, the Iron Spider arms. So okay. I'm sure that plays a little so bit I of could, a factor here. I, I could more or less continue on as normal. I would just have these four extra arms to do with as I please. That's that's kind of cool. I suppose. But I think the question is, too, like, which one's more useful, though? I mean, yeah. Doc Ock's arms maybe a little bit more cumbersome, but um, they've got super strength. They, they do. can be uh, like lighting your cigar <laughs> while you're working, you know, hmm. yeah, they can be un- opening up crates from Amazon, you know, while you're having your morning coffee. That's true. That's true. I could work at a you know construction site, be a crane. I could. <laughs> it could be a crane. <laughs> well, there you go. Sure. And what a way to travel, too. You yeah, know, that's a good. Whereas point. I don't think that the the Iron Spider arms. I mean, they're good for, like, bracing you and such, yeah. but I don't think they really have as much, like, dexterity. Yeah, they're not as strong. They're not as useful, maybe. But they are more practical. So a, you can, you know, you don't have yeah. to have them out all the time. Right, right. So a little bit of a trade-off there, because I think ox arms are significantly more useful, but maybe a little cumbersome. Yeah. Also, you're pretty much saying you're okay with sleeping on your stomach for yeah. the rest of your life. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's, that's the thing. It's like, how do you... Yeah, the arm, you know, Doc Ock arms are, they're, they're cool, they're bigger, they're more menacing, more imposing, they're stronger. You know, he was able to fight off a whole emergency room with them. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, like you said, how do you sleep with them, literally? Like, how do you get comfortable? Like, how do you just sit in a chair and just, you know, relax with those arms? I mean, I don't know. That's, uh... I'd be curious to see him try, yeah. I mean, somehow he manages to fit four arms into a trench coat and yeah. walking into a bank with anyone noticing. So well, maybe uh, they apparently have some sort of yeah. ability to, you know, kind of shrink, but, ma- yeah. but not be fully retracted into your suit. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I'd probably, I'd probably still go with the, uh, iron spider arms myself, honestly, just because they're not as, they're still pretty cool. They're still useful. They're still helpful. And I- I'm not doing that many things that require me to have four extra limbs that are <laughs> you know capable of withstanding, you know, intense amounts of force. Mm-hmm. So I would probably go with the Iron Spider. It's still pretty cool. I still think I would get what I needed out of them, but I don't. Yeah, the, the retractability element is definitely that's a, uh, preferable. That's probably the biggest hang-up for me, quite honestly. It's just, yeah, like having them when you need them is really cool. Like, you know, the Doc Ock arms, if you need them and you have them, that's great. You know, such as handling tritium and, you know, nuclear fusion and all that. But it's all the other times. But yeah, it's you like, know. you know, the 99% of your life when you're not doing those things you know, how do you manage? And I think having, how do you get a shower? That's what I'm saying. Like just practical <laughs> necessities like that. Um, showering, dri- driving, sitting down. I'm going to say though, as something of a multitasker myself, you know, it, it would obviously be like a commitment to make. Yeah. But I think I could make do with the, the doc. Ock arms. Okay. I mean, he has, I mean, he's, yeah. you have to embrace it though. You know, have to like embrace this as a new lifestyle. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he talks to them, gets around on them. He goes places with them. You know, we talked about commuting. That that's a heck of a way to commute. Uh, that'd be pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 definitely climb and it, leap from building to building. Yeah, that, that's true. So it's a different way of life. But uh, <laughs> just think about how much I could get done. You know, I could cook dinner. You know, sweep the kitchen. You know, check underneath the stove for crumbs <laughs> all at the same time. You know, so, something pretty appealing about that. To a bit of a multitasker. True. True. So pretty cool well, that, that, they are cool I, I mean either one of them is cool quite frankly cooler than anything i own uh, that's so, true yeah i would still probably <laughs> well go, same here for that matter i would still go with the iron spider um i mean that's fair, even yeah. if it didn't come with you know all the rest of the the stark uh technology mm-hmm. it would still be pretty cool to have that so 
Fair enough. So that's a yeah, tough, so, tough choice. Tough choice. Well, that was, uh, I suppose you could say that was my impression of being an arms dealer. But, uh, <laughs> and with that, <laughs> I think we better wrap this up before. Call me Heavenway because we're about to say a farewell to arms here. <laughs> See, I was worried this was going to happen. So we better wrap this up before we go any further down this path. Um, well, we've had a heck of a time hopping through universes, but I'm going to be glad to get back to the good old Sam Raimi-verse in our next episode. Yes, you could say we'll be traveling back in time to the 2000s, uh, a time in which I am infinitely more comfortable. Um, <laughs> a lot of great so. memories, fond memories. But yes, absolutely. Thank you all for joining us on this uh, wonderful journey. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we've enjoyed it. If you like, you can take two buses and a cab to Twitter at SMTT Podcast. That's SMTT as in so much to tell podcast. And if you're able, consider joining us on Patreon to help us make this show. Right now, all we got is this 20 for the rest of the week. So until next time, Godspeed, Spider fans. All right. No way home. In the books. We did it. All right. <laughs> Long last. <laughs>